Well, thank you again for joining us today. We're continuing our Advent series. And uh, we're going to look at the fulfillment of Advent, of the first Advent, the arrival of Jesus. Last week we learned about the promise of Advent. The promise that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And this week I want to look at the birth of Jesus and the, the doctrine of the incarnation. God becoming one of us, taking on flesh. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today, Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're only going to read verses 1 to 7. Uh, 1 to 7. Uh, the rest of the verses we'll cover next week in our Christmas sermon. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to, from Galilee, from that town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. I also want to read John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. I combine these two passages for our sermon today, because I want us to see the connection between them. That the birth of Jesus Christ is the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That what took place in that lowly manger in Bethlehem would be the full revelation of God's glory. His grace and truth made known to us. That it would be the fulfillment of his promise that God would be with us and save us from our sins. In our message today, we're going to look at three things regarding the incarnation. First, the miracle of the incarnation. Second, the mission of the incarnation. And finally, the movement, the movement of the incarnation. Now, in plain terms, the birth of Jesus seems pretty miraculous in and of itself. To deliver a healthy baby in a barn. Right, where animals sleep, and then to lay him down in a manger where animals eat. That was a feeding trough that Jesus was laid in. That's a crazy story. I mean, my wife, uh, this past year, uh, she gave birth at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Far better, far better than a barn, right? And I couldn't imagine her delivering Seth in some barn in Norco with a bunch of chickens and cows. Uh, if that happened, I would have lost my mind and and I would have been ashamed for life, right, as a failed husband. We've all heard amazing birth stories taking place in planes, in cars, right? Uh, I, was, I was watching Seth Meyers, the comedian. He was doing a stand-up. He said one of his kids was born in the foyer of his, of his apartment complex. They didn't even make it down through the front doors. The baby was born in the foyer of their apartment. It was crazy. We hear stories like that all the time. What makes the birth of Jesus truly miraculous is not the condition by which he was born, but the nature of who he was at the Son of God. We're not called to marvel at the circumstances of Jesus' birth. 
we should be marveling at who Jesus was as the Son of God. Sometimes at Christmas, we, we make a little too much of these lowly conditions. We, we dig into the story that there was no room for Mary and Joseph at the end. We're like, oh my gosh, how could they not know? How could they not greet the King of kings and Lord of lords? We try to get all sentimental about baby Jesus being laid in a manger. And we try to use these details to arouse our sympathy and our emotions. And we're like, oh, poor baby Jesus. Oh, baby, oh, poor Mary and Joseph. That must have been so stressful and difficult. And we tend to end there. The real miracle, the real message of Christmas is in the incarnation. That God became man. That he took on flesh and he lived among us. Now, Christianity isn't entirely unique in the story of God becoming a man. It really isn't entirely unique. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, you've probably heard of the story of Zeus as the father of Hercules. And if you didn't read the story, uh, maybe you grew up in the generation with Kevin Sorbo and those TVs, uh, that whole TV series. Awesome, terrible television. Um, but in that story... Zeus uh, was the Greek god of thunder. He was the most mighty of all of the Greek gods. And he disguised himself as a human to seduce a woman that he desired. And after successfully doing so, Hercules was born as a demigod, half man and half god. Now, why did Zeus do this? Why did Zeus do this? He was married to Hera. And Hera was the queen of the gods. And she was notorious for having a jealous, angry streak. So why would Zeus incite the anger of Hera? And he didn't do this just once. If you read through the mythologies, he did this over and over again. Greek mythology tells us that Zeus did it because he fell in love with human women. That human women were so beautiful and desirable that even the gods themselves couldn't resist them. And throughout Greek mythology, there are stories where the gods want to be like men. They want to be like humans. They want to experience the things that we experience, to have the things that we have. And you see, Greek mythology was essentially humanistic. It was humanistic. It was centered upon humanity to make us feel good about who we are. It tells us this. Humans are so beautiful That humanity is so great that even the gods want to become like us. Even the gods want what we have. They covet our lives and our experiences. But Christianity and the message of the incarnation, it's utterly different. The Bible doesn't tell us that we were so great. That humankind was so great that, that God wanted to become like us. It doesn't tell us that God was curious about the human experience or that he coveted the human experience. No, instead, Christmas and the incarnation tells us that we were so weak, that we were so broken, that God had to become like us in order to save us. Completely different than Greek mythology. That we couldn't save ourselves. We were so unable, we were so weak that God had to become like us in order to save us. In fact, God had to condescend from heaven to earth in order to do so. In a way, Christmas is humiliating to humanity. It's humiliating to us 
telling us that the hope of the world is not in our greatest thinkers, not in our greatest leaders or in our resources, but the hope of the world is found in a baby lying in a manger. There's nothing weaker, nothing more vulnerable and frail than a newborn baby. And at the same time, Christianity is also dignifying to humanity. Christmas reminds us that we were created in God's image and we were so loved by him that he gave his only son. He gave his only son. J.I. Packer considered the incarnation of Christ the greatest miracle and the greatest mystery of the Bible. That was his conclusion after studying the scriptures in his entire life. More than Jesus walking on water, more than Jesus feeding the 5,000 or even raising the dead, it's harder to even understand than the doctrine of atonement and justification. I mean, just think about this. By one man's life, by one man's death, millions upon millions of people are forgiven of all of their sins and granted eternal life. Just think about how, how cosmic, right? How mind-blowing that exchange is. One man for all of the nations of God's people. It's mind-blowing because when we accept the story of Christmas and the incarnation, we are affirming that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That in the person of Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That he is nothing less than the second person of the Trinity, the Word and the Son of God become flesh. The doctrine of the incarnation tells us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. His humanity is not partial. Jesus wasn't masquerading around as a human. He wasn't just wearing a human body like an avatar or some kind of disguise. As the author of Hebrews says, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, yet without sin. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. And unfortunately, we can't go much deeper than that. We can't go much farther beyond that. If you ask me, Pastor Mike, how does that happen? How does the fullness of God dwell in Jesus the man? How can this happen? My honest answer is we don't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Theologians, theologians have coined another phrase called the hypostatic union. It sounds super technical, but if you read through it, in the end they're just saying it's fully God and fully man coming together in the person of Jesus. If you try to think about it too much, your, your head hurts. It's like trying to fill all the water of the Pacific Ocean into one cup. Or capture all of the light in the universe in, in one light bulb. It's just mind-blowing beyond our understanding. This is where we have to accept the mystery of the incarnation. And even the incomprehensibility of the incarnation. But I don't want to discourage you because there's a lot of things in life that are incomprehensible that we adopt, right? That we regularly embrace. One is this, right? How are we both body and spirit, right? How are we dual-natured as human beings? How are we more than just blood and, 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 um, and flesh and tissue, right? We believe that, that we have inner spiritual components to our nature. We have a spiritual nature. How does that work, right? That's incomprehensible and mysterious as well, right? Or here's another one, even simpler, right? How do we 
as human beings have both brains and minds. Right? And there's a distinction between your physical brain right, and then the intellect, what's going on in your mind is actually happening. How, how do those things coexist in our bodies, in our heads? Very difficult. It's mysterious, right? It's mysterious. But Packer says this, but once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, all other difficulties dissolve. The incarnation is itself, is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. Friends, do you see this? And do you get it? You see, if, if Jesus is truly, fully God, then everything falls into place. Of course the miracles are possible if Jesus is fully God. Of course his teaching is authoritative. Of course Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. If he is the Son of God, of course he is able by his own death and by the power of his resurrection, able to secure the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for everyone who believes. But it all begins with the incarnation. It's only possible and it's only meaningful if Jesus is both fully God and fully man. The incarnation is the most astounding miracle in the Bible. And in the incarnation, we don't just have an amazing miracle. We also have a radical mission. And the mission is this. Jesus was born to die. Jesus was born to die. Luke, along with Matthew, both remind us that Jesus was born in the line of David as Joseph's adopted son. Not natural son, but adopted son. And he gave him his name. And he gave him that privilege and that blessing to be in the line of David. And that's why they were in Bethlehem, the city of David. Joseph was there with his pregnant wife to register and eventually pay taxes in his hometown. And in the city of David, the true son of David was born. And the child born to them would be the king of kings and sit on the everlasting throne that was promised to King David in the Old Testament. But the path for Jesus to get to the throne, to sit on that throne, it would go from the cradle to the cross. That's the path that Jesus would take to eventually sit on the throne of David, to go from the cradle to the cross. The Gospels all remind us that Jesus was born to die. And after John tells us in his Gospel that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, John quotes another John that's famous in the New Testament, John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus in chapter 1, he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what John is doing, he's connecting the incarnation of Jesus with his mission to the cross. That Jesus was the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, and that Jesus would go to the cross and save his people from their sins. And this was accomplished as he died on the cross, declaring, it is finished. Church, this is so important for us today, especially because Christians, or Christmas, sorry, Christmas here in America has become such a holiday. 
It's become such a holiday. We equate it with paid time off, right? PTO, baby, I love it, right? And, and, and time off of school. We equate Christmas with time spent with friends and family, festivities filled with food, presents, vacations. We often ask, hey, are you, are you going anywhere? Are you doing anything special for Christmas? It's an American vision of human flourishing. At Christmas, we want our lives to be at their ideal state, right? It's, it's that one time of year, we just want things to line up for our life to be good. For, for things to be whole and complete, we want to be well-rested. We want to be surrounded by people that we love. We want to enjoy life to the fullest. That's the American vision of Christmas. And I have to confess that even as a pastor, I'm tempted by this cultural vision of Christmas. When I first came to this church a little over, a little over five years ago, and I heard that we not only worship on the Sunday before Christmas as Christmas Sunday, but that we worship on Christmas Day. See, I never had Christmas Day worship in my entire life. My initial reaction, pure annoyance. <laughs> I was annoyed, right? Because that's another work day for me, right? Pure and honestly, I, I thought it was kind of oppressive. I was like, man, the Korean church, man, so oppressive. Why am I here to go to church on Christmas morning? I literally said in our staff meeting, I can't believe we have to come to church on Christmas. We should be, we should be spending our, and this is being recorded. Uh, um, we should be spending our time with our families on Christmas morning, taking time off, not having to be here. I heard of other churches, like literally taking the entire week of Christmas off, the Sunday before and the Sunday after. And I was like, man, that is the Christmas that I want. Right? That's the kind of church they would like do their Christmas uh, Sunday services on the 15th or 16th. It would have been today. And then the rest of the year, they're off. They're off. Like churches shut down. Right? I was like, dude, that's, that's, that's awesome. And then I started to kind of think about, well, what is Christmas about? Why, why do we do this here at All Nations? And the more I thought about it, I realized worshiping together as the body of Christ, worshiping together as the family of God, it is the greatest thing that we can do on Christmas morning. It's the most appropriate thing that we should be doing as Christians. And as my wife and I have celebrated Christmas here for the last five years, we're looking forward to instilling the centrality of Christ on Christmas morning to our son, Seth. We both think it's, it's actually our favorite service throughout the entire year. And I invite you to come and experience it. To come and experience a Christmas morning worshiping Christ the Lord. The presence, the eggnog, as if any of us drink eggnog, right? That can wait. Right? I'm so glad the Lakers-Clippers game is at 5 p.m. <laughs> Service will be long finished, right? You'll already have gotten your Christmas nap in, right? That's at 5 p.m., so don't worry about that. But would you consider this year starting and centering Christmas Day on Jesus Christ who loved us and saved us from our sins. I love what Kevin DeYoung says about the mission of Jesus and how it connects to the mission of the church. He says this, we want the church to remember that there's something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. Okay? This is the truth of Christianity. There's something worse than just physical death. And there's something greater 
than human flourishing. This Christmas, would you do more than just pursue an American vision of flourishing, resting, presence, celebrating, right? Vacationing, whatever it might be. That, that, that is desirable. That is compelling. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not stomping on those things. Go and, 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 and take time off. Be with your family. Take Instagrammable moments, right, with your kids. But would you also recognize in the midst of the festivities, in the midst of the activities, that those things do fall short of truly satisfying our souls? Would you see that, that a cultural Christmas that, that, that flourishing in this life and in this world alone fails to offer what we truly need, which is peace with God, peace with others. What we truly need in the forgiveness of sins, the promise of everlasting life, the ability, the ability to face death and know that it has no sting because Jesus Christ has overcome death itself in his resurrection. That's the mission of Jesus. Not just to give us a holiday once a year with time off of work and school, but to give us hope eternal, hope everlasting. As he came, he came to die. And save us from our sins. The movement of the incarnation, our final point today. The Apostle Paul, he reflects on this great doctrine of the incarnation. And in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he writes this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by, through, uh, by his poverty, might become rich. Like I shared last week, Advent is the moving of God towards us. It's the moving of God towards us. It's the light of God breaking into our darkness and for us to truly celebrate this season of Advent. We're called not only to reflect on God's moving towards us in Jesus Christ, we must also reflect on how we are called to move towards one another how we're called to move towards this world, move towards our neighbors, even move towards our enemies in Christian love. This verse reminds us of all that Jesus gave up when he took on flesh. You see, there, there are people out there who don't think that it's that big a deal. I mean, what's the big deal, Mike? I mean, Jesus came down, lived for 32 years, and then left. He went back up into heaven. What's the big deal? That seems pretty easy for Jesus, right? That seems pretty simple for Jesus. We forget all that he gave up in the incarnation. Jesus gave up the glory and riches of heaven. Jesus laid aside all of his heavenly comforts and he became poor and he accepted the frailties of humanity. He experienced hunger. He experienced isolation, loneliness, temptation, pain, betrayal, and ultimately death on the cross. There are some of you whose children have never experienced real hunger, right? You've always provided for them, right? Their hunger at best is just a little bit. Jesus went 40 days in the wilderness fasting and experiencing hunger. Why? 
for our sake, for our redemption. That by his poverty, you and I might become rich. Jesus, through his incarnation, knew that he had to become our great high priest who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. That's who we have in Jesus Christ, a great mediator who knows us, who knows the, the, the weight of temptation. And he is victorious over all of our failures, right? all of our temptations in our place. Friends, this is not just a romantic picture of divine love. It's radically sacrificial. The grace of Christ that is offered to each and every one of us It comes at great cost. It's ours freely by grace, but it costed Jesus so much. Every day that Jesus walked on this earth, do you know what theologians call that? It's his humiliation. Okay, So there's two stages of Jesus' life, his humiliation and his glorification. And every day of Jesus' earthly life and earthly ministry was considered his humiliation. Why? Because God, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, experienced the frailty of life on earth. And he suffered at the hands of his creation. As people mocked him, denied him, persecuted him, betrayed him. Who is Jesus Christ? What honor did he deserve? And he turned that down in the incarnation, so that he could save and redeem us. Love at a great cost. Yet he did so for the glory of the Father and for our good. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, the Son of Man became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is the privilege that he purchased for us, that you and I, could be sons and daughters of God. So that you and I could be adopted into God's family, that we could be citizens in God's everlasting kingdom. This is the movement, this is the mission, the purpose of the incarnation. And for those of us who have come to know this love, for those of us who know the depth and the costly nature of the gospel, Paul writes, love as Christ has loved us. Move towards others as God has moved towards us. And this means that the Christian is the kind of person who is able to love freely at great cost to himself. Can you do that? Can you love others freely at great cost to yourself? Or when you sacrifice, are you looking for something in return, right? Husbands and wives, we know the game, right? There's the scoring system. I do this. For you, I do this for the kids. I do this for the family. I am expecting something back. My wife goes on vacation. What does that mean for me? Golf trip, right? (laughs) Tit for tat. There's an exchange. The Christian is able to freely love, freely give of himself, and bear the cost, and sacrifice deeply and greatly out of love. Not out of convenience, Not out of charity. And I'm using the word charity not in the old archaic form, which is love. The new form. Just giving. Modern. When we say charity, we give. And we just just kind of skim off the top. We're just like, oh, I got a couple bucks in my wallet. Here you go. We are not very much affected by charitable giving. 
We're not willing to make ourselves poor for the sake of others. We're just like, oh, I got a, I got a little excess, right? I got a little abundance, a little overflow, a little extra, so I will give that to you or to a cause or to a person. For the Corinthians, Paul's challenge was financial giving. He noted the Macedonians, even in their extreme poverty, they considered it a privilege. They, want, they begged and pleaded for Paul to accept their gift. They wanted to contribute to the mission work of God. That was Paul's challenge for the Corinthians, and that might be the challenge for some of you today. To look, look at people in your life, to see them in financial hardship and say, you know what? Let me support you. And it's not because I'm so wealthy and rich. It's not because I have so much extra. It's because there are places in my life I'm willing to cut out. Expenses in my life I'm willing to sacrifice. Do without so that you can have. So that you, yeah, can experience provision. For others of you, it might just be your time, your energy, your service. There's a lot of people here, maybe we're good at giving financially, but we're terrible of giving our time. Like, I just don't have that. I'll cut the check, don't ask me to serve. I'll cut the check, don't ask me to, to participate in all of these things because I, I just don't have that much time. And that's your, that's your treasure. But what about Christ? What do you see in the costly, sacrificial love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give another very like base example, but I think it'd be a blessing to a lot of people. We're in rainy season, right? El Nino. What do you do as a Christian? And you see someone walking on the curb and you see the rain pouring down and they have like a newspaper or whatever and you got an umbrella in your car. You could stop. Would you give? Would you give that umbrella to that stranger in need and then know that, hey, what does that mean? means you're going to get the downpour when you have to go to work, when you have to go to school, when you got to walk from your car to wherever it might be, the rain is going to fall on you. Your hair is going to get wet. Your clothes are going to get soaked. But you said, you know what? I will let the rain fall on me so that it won't fall on them. So that they can be spared. So that they can be blessed. So that they can be protected. Right? Or you're smart and you just carry two umbrellas. And you're ready to be generous and, and thoughtful. Another way to, to just practice this, right, as a church, is uh, even today after our service. Can you love? Can you move towards people as Christ has moved towards you? And I know after service is like an in, introvert's nightmare. You're just like, I don't want to talk to anyone except for the people that I already know in my, in my comfortable tribe and comfortable space. But brothers and sisters, biblical hospitality, right? it is something that God calls us to. And this room is, right, there are strangers in our midst. There's a ton of people that you don't know. You consider them strangers. Will you ignore them? Will you walk right past them or will you move towards them and greet them? Welcome them. Give them, give them your time. Give of yourself. Possibly pursue a friendship with them. Would we consider moving towards one another, knowing that while we were yet sinners, God moved towards us. He demonstrated his love for us through the sending of his son, through the sacrifice of his son. 
That's the doctrine of the incarnation and all of its implications, which consider our Lord Jesus Christ, all that he has done for you. And would you also on this day consider what he has called us to as we move towards one another, as we move towards this world as the ambassadors of Jesus. Let's bring him glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ. Who are we that you would love us with such a scandalous and sacrificial love? Father, I pray that for many here on this day, that you would open our hearts to receive your love. We might see ourselves as as unlovable. We might see ourselves as just beyond, beyond your grace, beyond your saving, beyond your acceptance. Lord, I pray that you would lift their eyes off of themselves and onto Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, I pray for others of us today that you would open our eyes to one another, that you would open our hearts to our neighbors and you would compel us, God, not just to love as we prefer to love, not just to love in a way that is convenient and familiar to us and our own love languages, but Lord, help us, God, to love in a way that Christ has loved us. gave up the wealth, the glory, the comfort of heaven and made himself poor so that we could become rich. Help us to seek the welfare of others, knowing that that is a beautiful expression of the gospel and the true meaning of Christmas.